Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Michael. Um, it is a joy to see you guys this morning. We are quickly outgrowing this space. <laughs> so I know it's a little packed this morning, and so I'm going to ask you to do something awkward, so you can thank me later. If there is a seat in the middle, could you squeeze in just slightly? So if somebody does come a little bit late, they can just sit in on the outside without feeling too awkward. So y'all are welcome for that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well done. This is great. Excellent. Okay, so for those um, who don't know, uh, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church, and it is amazing just to, to see what the Lord has done in the past, even less than six months. We gathered here for the first time in December, and I think there were maybe 20 of us, and the Lord's just kindly and steadily um, added to our number, and this is it's a joy to see a room full, so... Praise God for that. So as we get going uh, this morning, I want to share with you um, a small little story here. In 1996, Richard Dawkins, um, a British biologist and noted atheist, received an award. The award was the Humanist of the Year. And he received it from the American Humanist Association. And in more recent years, so that was 1996, in more recent years, Richard Dawkins, um, the biologist that he is, has publicly asked some questions that have um, kind of brought some issues to light with the transgender movement. And so Richard Dawkins, he wrote this. He said, is trans woman a woman? He said, it's purely semantics. If you define by chromosomes then no. Men XY chromosomes, women XX chromosomes. And so he then said in April of this year, so six years later from that 2015 statement, um, he brought up some issues with self-identification. And so he said someone self-identifies as something, we have to look at their bi biology. And so he brought some questions to light there without getting into too many details. That was April 10th of this year. Less than 10 days later, on April 19th, the American Humanist Association quickly gathered and voted to withdraw their 1996 award to Richard Dawkins. Now, for those of you who don't know, Richard Dawkins is not exactly a guy that we would find ourselves in the same boat with, okay? He is, is a noted atheist. So typically, when it comes to culture and their view of, of Christians, and he's typically on the other side, so to speak. So I say that for a couple of reasons. One, so you can have better context for this illustration. Um, but two, if you think about it, pray for Richard Dawkins. That guy needs Jesus. And so even though sometimes I can share these things and they can seem like a faraway person, but a real person who really does need Jesus. But even Richard Dawkins, the noted atheist that he is, the one who has attacked Christianity in many books, in blogs, in articles, in academic pieces. He has written extensively against the Christian faith. Even he found himself out of step with some of the cultural expectations that we see now. And without even realizing it, Dawkins embraced a Christian understanding of the world in that moment. He understood that our identity runs deeper than the words that we speak. He was taking it from a molecular and a biological 
DNA standpoint with XY and XX chromosomes, but he understood that our identity is deeper than simply words that come out of our mouths. Now, if Richard Dawkins can be found out of step with society for embracing, even unknowingly, a, a Christian ideology, then how much more so those of us who are trying to pursue Jesus? So Dawkins quickly was, fell out of grace, how much more so us who are intentionally trying to pursue Jesus? And so last week, I bring that up because last week Ben spoke, he did a tremendous job preaching um, Mark 8, verses 31 through 38. We've been trying to go passage by passage throughout the book of Mark. We've been in it since December, and we're a little bit over halfway now. So Ben did a great job, but just a recap, in that passage, Jesus foretold his coming death, his coming suffering, and his death, and Peter tried to stop him. Peter tried to say, no, 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 you don't. You're the Messiah. We just realized this the passage before. Peter confessed him. The disciples confessed him as Messiah. He's like, you don't have to suffer. They had a wrong understanding of what the Messiah was. But Jesus knew that he must suffer and die. And so then Jesus rebuked Peter. And then he called anyone who was to follow him to pick up their cross. And he says this in verse 38, the last verse of last week's passage. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And so the question for us this morning is how can we live a life that resembles us not being ashamed of our Savior? How can we be equipped to live unashamed as that Chapter 8, verse 38, the last verse in last week's passage. Now this week, thankfully, the text addresses that. How can we live equipped to be unashamed of the Son of Man? And by beholding who Jesus is, I would submit to you, by catching just a glimpse of the King's glory, that will be what roots us. That will be the way that we can be equipped to suffer like him and to not be ashamed of him, to take up our cross as he commands us in the previous passage and to not be ashamed as society puts pressure on us to embrace certain things that may not be consistent with a Christian worldview. And so with the passage today, by God's grace, I believe we'll gain a framework for how to be equipped, how to be equipped to live in an unashamed Way. And so, real quick, background, I said that we've been in Mark. For those who may not know this book, the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark. It was written in the 50s or 60s AD, so 20 to 30 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. It'd be kind of similar to if someone were to write about 9-11 today. So, crazy to think, right? That's 20 years ago this year. But it'd be similar to that, that kind of distance. Um, and then the theme for this book is God restoring his wayward people primarily through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so recently we kind of touched that the disciples realized who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah, that he was the son of the living God, and that they didn't quite fully understand, kind of like the blind man right before that, where he needed two touches to be healed. He was touched. He said he saw people. They were kind of like trees moving. So Jesus had to touch him again. That was a living parable that the disciples, as they gain understanding, that they can kind of see who Jesus is, but they're going to need a second touch, and that will come after the resurrection. 
And so now this week, in verses or in chapter nine, verses one through thirteen, as Lauren read, I think we're going to see three key elements as to how to live unashamed. Three key elements for being equipped to live unashamed. You can find that in your bulletin. But that's we must understand Jesus' identity. We must know and listen to his words. And we must walk with him and his people. So I will jump into it. But first I'm going to pray. Father, we come before you and we give you praise. We are grateful for the gift to gather. We are grateful for the good news of the cross. And we pray that this morning we would be equipped to pick up our cross. That we would be willing to suffer unashamed. Unashamed of Christ. Help me speak clearly. Give us ears to hear what your word says. Lord, we pray for Salt and Light Church in downtown as they proclaim the gospel. That you would allow them to see gospel fruit. We pray for Paramount Church in Bexley. Lord, we're grateful for their steady faithfulness throughout the years. We pray for Redemption Hill Church in Galloway, Lord, as they are a brand new church, younger than us. Lord, we ask for your blessing on them, that you would protect their core team as they prepare to launch a church and to covenant together as a body. And God, we pray for Grace Fellowship Church here in Westerville, a neighbor church. Lord, we're grateful that they are proclaiming the gospel. And we ask that they would see much fruit. Lord, we need you. Holy Spirit, please help us this morning. Help me. There's a million things going on in each of our lives. Help us to focus this morning. And we pray that you would allow us to taste and see how good you are in our time together. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the first key element that I'd like us to see in this passage is that we must understand Jesus' identity. That's the first thing. If we're going to live equipped, we must understand who Jesus really is. And now this passage, or this point, fair warning, This is where I'm going to spend most of our time because there's a lot that goes on in this text and there's a lot of Old Testament references. And so I am going to reference a few of them, but I just want you to have a heads up that as I spend most of the time in this first point, all the points aren't going to be this long. So we're not going to be here till two or three, Lord willing. Um, So let's go through this. Verse one. We read that there are, Jesus is saying that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, so let's look at that. Some standing here. Jesus is saying there are some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, we know Jesus has not yet returned for the second time. So there were the people standing there long since tasted death. So it poses a little bit of attention right from the get-go. What does Jesus mean here? Now, we would see that various different commentators have various different answers for this. One commentary that I was looking at offered six different 
responses, different possibilities for what Jesus could mean. However, they all came to, at least the ones I was looking at, came to the same conclusion that, that some standing here is referring to Peter, James, and John. So Peter, James, and John are there. And the reason that they say that is because in Mark, his gospel, in Matthew's gospel, and in Luke's gospel, they each have this event. And each time when Jesus says this, the very next passage is the transfiguration. So there's a consistency happening there. That there are some here who will see the glory of the king. And the very next passage is the transfiguration. So with that, as we move into verses 2 through 7, this is where a lot of the Old Testament references come in. So strap yourselves in. Here we go. So in verse 2, we read, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain. Okay. So the fact that they're going up a high mountain is already should be a red flag for us that there is something important about to take place. Something important is about to happen because what we've seen throughout the Old Testament is that throughout, as we see God working with his people, mountains play a significant role in that. When he takes his people up a mountain, something important happens. We see Noah with the ark, they land on the mountains of Ararat. Abraham and Isaac go up a mountain, Mount Moriah. Elijah, as he's going against the, the priests of Baal, he has that take place on Mount Carmel. Jesus, in the Gospels, gives his most famous sermon on a mount. And Jesus himself is crucified on a small mount. And then God's dwelling in the Old Testament is known as Mount Zion. Then, and this is the one we're going to camp out in a little bit, Moses, when he receives the Ten Commandments from God, is taken up Mount Sinai. Now, it takes him six days to get up Mount Sinai. And what we see here in verse 2, right after Jesus said that there will be some who see this kingdom of God, says that after six days. So Moses, six days to get up Mount Sinai. Jesus says, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God. Some of you are going to see the glory there. Six days later, he's taken up a mountain. This happens. So there's a proclamation, and then there's six days, and then we see this event. Now, when they're up on the mountain, similar to Moses on Mount Sinai, there is a glimpse of God's glory. We don't see the full thing, but we see a glimpse of it. We see a bright light. Moses has a radiant face. We see Jesus here being um, entirely radiant, um, more white than what they could even, anyone in the world could bleach the clothes, according to the text. We see a cloud that covers the mountain in both Moses on Mount Sinai and Jesus here on the mount. And we see God speaking from the cloud. And so in Exodus, um, no, in Exodus, as you read throughout the Old Testament, and as Moses leads his people out of, leads God's people out of Egypt, out of bondage, we see they're led by a pillar of cloud by day. So this cloud resembles the presence of God. We see it in Exodus 40 when the cloud fills the tabernacle. We see it in 1 Kings 8 when the cloud fills Solomon's temple. And in the, the Pillar New Testament commentary, they, they comment on the cloud here because that, that word cloud is the Greek word that is used 
um, in the Exodus passages that we just mentioned, as well as 1 Kings 8. And so what they have to say about that is that the cloud is the impregnating presence of God, symbolizing that in Jesus, even more than in the tabernacle of old, God dwells bodily with humanity. So when we see this cloud, we see the impregnating presence of God. See that this cloud resembles God with his people. And then we see in verses 4 through 7, Elijah and Moses show up. Now, why would Elijah and Moses show up? Now, some commentators would say that it's because Elijah represents the prophets and Moses represents the law, and they could be right. Um, There's a reason why I think both would represent the prophets, and that primarily comes from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses speaks, and he says, The Lord your God, he's telling the the people, people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And then just three verses later, God speaks and says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So we see Moses and Elijah show up potentially representing the law and the prophets, more likely representing the prophets. Either way, both find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. But what are they doing? What are they doing when, these, when they show up? We read in verse 4 that there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. They are shooting the breeze with Jesus. What a conversation to have been able to sit in on. What were they what were they talking about? Well, thankfully, Luke tells us. It says Luke in 931, Luke 931 says that they spoke of his departure. The word there is the same word used for Exodus in the Old Testament, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so the prophets, you see Moses, who led the people in the Exodus, led them out of bondage, led them out of slavery. We see them show up. We see Elijah trying to free people from bondage of worshiping Baal. And so we see Elijah and Moses gather here at the Transfiguration. And what do they talk about? Talk about the exodus that Jesus himself now is about to lead his people through. Jesus' work on the cross could be described as the new exodus. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor theologian, systematic theology professor, he says this about it. He says that Jesus' death would be the new Passover. The salvation of his people would be the new exodus. So if you remember when God's people were in Israel, there was the Passover. And the angel of death came through Egypt and killed the firstborn. But... If you, if you took an unblemished lamb and sacrificed it and took the blood and put it on the, your doorstep and on the lintel of your doors, then the angel of death would pass over and your household would be spared. Sinclair Ferguson points out that Jesus' death on the cross is the new Passover. He's the unblemished lamb that was slain on our behalf and his 
resurrection would be the new exodus. We see Jesus fulfilling Old Testament typologies. So why all these Old Testament connections? We've looked at several of them. There's more that we could look at for sake of time. We'll continue on. But why all these Old Testament connections as we look at the transfiguration? It's because all of these Old Testament typologies are pointing to a greater one. And Jesus, what he's trying to tell his disciples is that I am the greater one that you've been waiting for. I am the prophet, the final prophet who's going to lead you out. I am the final Moses who's going to lead you through a new exodus. I'm the final Elijah who's finally going to put to death false gods. That day is coming, and he gives them a glimpse of it with this transfiguration. And we see in verse 7 that a cloud overshadowed them, which we've discussed. A voice came out of the cloud, and here's what it said. This is my beloved son. We talked about some mountains earlier. We took a little bit of a look at Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah. And God called Abraham to give up his son. He says in Genesis 22, verse 2, He, God, said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We see a mountain and we see a beloved son in both instances. In the instance of Abraham and Isaac, we see a son spared. In the instance of Jesus, we know that he is the beloved son who was not spared on our behalf. And so knowing Jesus' identity, knowing that he is the beloved son of God, undergirds our ability to live unashamed. Because if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then when the winds of society put pressure on us to give up beliefs that we are held by conscience to believe based off of the word, then if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, then it will be so much easier for us to just give those up and to look to a different moral teacher. But if he is the beloved son of God, then we are bound to it, no matter what that may bring. And so this morning, the only way for us to truly know the identity of Jesus is to be in his word. And I know I've harped on this so much in previous sermons talking about getting in the Word, but I will continue to do that. We must be in the Word. If One of the greatest tools you can buy is a solid study Bible. And if you're looking for some good suggestions, I'd be happy to give some. The ESV study Bible, I think, is just the best one out there, but there are other tremendous ones as well. Grab a good study Bible. That will help you understand what you are reading. Read the Word. Meditate on the Word. Memorize the Word. Spend time trying to get the word into you so that even when it's not in your hand or up on your phone, you're able to recall God's words. Ask the Holy Spirit for understanding as you read it. It's so easy just to read it and then just to, to move on to the next thing. And I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of reading and then 10 minutes later forgetting what I read. So take some time. Ask the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, help me understand what's going on here. 
Holy Spirit's known as our helper. That's what he's called throughout scripture, the helper. You want help understanding a passage? Ask the helper. And seek to understand in community. We need one another. And we'll, I'm not going to harp on that point too much because we'll get onto it later on in this sermon. But knowing Jesus' identity increases our love and our dedication to him so that when we are called to suffer, that day will come, whatever it looks like in our lives. It looks different for different cultures. It looks different for different people. But we are called to suffer. When that day comes, if we understand who he is, if we understand his true identity, and that will undergird and that will strengthen us as we go through that. And the only way we can know Jesus' true identity is by knowing and listening to Jesus' words. And that's your second point in your bulletin. We must know and listen to Jesus' words. Verse 7, I only read the first part of what God said when he spoke from the cloud. This is my beloved son. But what's the second part? He says, listen to him. This is who he is. He's my beloved son. And here's your response. Listen to him. Listen to him. He has things to say. He's speaking my words. Prophets in the Old Testament spoke on behalf of God. Jesus is the final prophet. Everything he says is what God says. And so God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. First century Jews expected a final prophet as they read the Old Testament. And so when Jesus shows up, they don't recognize that he is, in fact, that final prophet. But Acts 3.22 tells us that. For sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but you can look there on your own time, Acts 3.22. But notice that in verse 8, we see that suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So all this takes place. Jesus takes them up there. He's transfigured. There's a cloud. God speaks. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then, just like that, it's just Jesus again. And commentators have commented how Mark, when he describes it, it's really sudden. It's less sudden in Matthew and Luke. But in Mark, there's a point to be made. And it's that as all of this is going on, all of this craziness that in the disciples' eyes may be going on, Jesus is the only one standing because the Moses and Elijah, the other prophets, find their fulfillment in him. They say, yes, you have Moses, yes, you have Elijah, yes, you have the prophets, but all of them find their fulfillment in Christ. So then quickly, the scene is done, and it's just Jesus again. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then everything disappears, and it's just Jesus. Listen to him. And we listen to Jesus by acknowledging the authority of his word and submitting to it. This takes humility. This is difficult. If you read the Bible and you never find yourself feeling a little bit of tension with what's in there, then you may not be reading it rightly because the Bible pushes against our natural inclinations. We are naturally fallen. And the reason that the, we even have the word, the reason we need the word is because we're fallen. If we were in perfect relation with God, and we're doing everything the way that he commanded us to, then there'd be no reason for him to write anything to us. So we have the word because we are fallen. And so when we read it, don't be surprised if you feel a little bit of tension. That's good. Seek to understand it. Don't just say, oh, I don't understand. Seek to understand it. Seek to understand with others. Place yourselves under scripture, even if it goes against what the winds of society say this month or next month 
or next year. That's constantly going to change, but the word of God does not change. We listen to Jesus by acknowledging the authority of his word and submitting to it. But if we attempt to do this alone, we will fail. If we attempt to do it in isolation, it will not work out well for us. And so, point three, told you I wasn't going to spend as much time on point two and point three. Point three, key element number three to living equipped is that we walk with Jesus and his people. We walk with Jesus and his people. Notice we talked about the passage from last week where Jesus says, pick up your cross. He's talking to his disciples about suffering. And then we see in verses 1 through 8 in this passage that Jesus' identity is revealed. So suffering, identity, and then we read in verses 9 through 13, Jesus brings up suffering again. So let's start there. Verse 9. So this huge event just took place. And now, as they're heading back down off this mountaintop experience, we read, and as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. In Matthew 17, 13, we read this account, and they explain it for us, that they realized that he was talking about John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist coming first, paving the way for Jesus, he is the returning Elijah. That's how Jesus interprets that passage. He says he has come, and they did to him whatever they wanted. John the Baptist, who Jesus says there's no greater one born to woman than John the Baptist, he ends up being beheaded, which we read about earlier in Mark, to a, a tetrarch who was simply fulfilling a flimsy promise to a stepdaughter. It would seem that a death like that would be disappointing, would be anticlimactic, someone like John the Baptist. But John the Baptist is seen here as the coming Elijah, the one who prepares the way for Jesus. And if Jesus identifies him as the Elijah, then Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah. So he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, verse 9, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Why? Why tell no one? This is arguably one of the most amazing experiences that they have ever had. They literally just saw the coming king. They caught a glimpse of his glory. I mean, tell no one? Why would he say tell no one? James Edwards points this out. He says, verse 9 is the last injunction, the last command to silence in Mark. It is the only one that gives a reason for the command. And it places a time limit on the secret. Therefore, this verse is the key to understanding all the commands of silence. And he says this, until Jesus had died 
and had been raised, his true identity and significance could not be known. Until he had died and was raised, he didn't want anybody to know that he was the Messiah. He wanted them to wonder, to ponder, but he didn't want to confirm it until the work was finished, which makes sense because it's not in Jesus' partial work that we gather on the first day of the week to encourage each other in. It's in his finished work. Every month at work, I have to put together a report. I have to present it to my higher-ups. And what ends up happening is I put this report together a few days before, and if they were to change the meeting and say, hey, we're going to do this a few days early, hope your report's ready, I would be freaking out. I would not want them to see the partial work. I want them to see the completed work. And Jesus, in the same way, does not want the disciples to focus necessarily on the partial work. He wants them to see the full picture. So he says, don't tell people who I am until the work is finished. It's the reason why we gather on Sundays to remind each other of the finished work of Jesus. We, as Christians, this is our natural response is to gather on the first day. I, I played baseball in college and loved playing baseball. It'd be weird if I said, yeah, I'm on the team. I practice with the team, but I don't show up to the games. Or I like to play baseball, but, but on a basketball court. I don't like playing on a baseball field. That's too, too weird. Play on a basketball court. We, as Christians, we, we gather to remind ourselves on the first day of the week of Jesus' finished work. That's why we try to be gospel-centered, because we need to be reminded of the gospel. We care about the body of Christ. We care about the church. If you love Jesus, you love his body. I was uh, talking with a guy that I play basketball with, and um, he was sharing with me how since the pandemic, they haven't gone back to church, and... I tried to ask some extra questions in there, and I mean to have a, a conversation with him, but since then, basketball's taken a break, so Lord willing, we'll be able to have this conversation. But I was thinking, man, it's, it's healthy for you. And his, his statement was, well, I get like 30 times the amount in my own personal Bible study than I do when I go to church. And what I want to say to him is, brother, going to church isn't just about you. It's what you can do for others as well. And to say that you love Jesus, but you don't love his body, would be like me telling you that I love you, but I don't care if your body's ravaged with cancer. But I love you. I'm not concerned about your body. If we love Jesus, we love the body. We gather to exhort and upbuild one another. Followers of Jesus embrace suffering because they recognize that as we gather and as we remind ourselves of the gospel, we are reminded that there is future glory. So we embrace suffering because we know our Savior suffered, and through his suffering came glory, came resurrection. And if we are in him, then we are promised that as well. We must walk together by suffering alone. Suffering alone is not God's will for our lives. He's called us over 50 times in the New Testament these one another statements. Do this together. So we must walk together. And you will, I promise you, at some point, maybe today, maybe you're in that season, maybe it's not for down the road, maybe you've come out of that season previously, but there will be a point 
where you will go through something that you cannot handle alone. There's a popular phrase, and I used to say it myself when I was in college, is that God will never give me more than what I can handle. And I am telling you today that even as I espoused that shortly after, I went through something I could not handle. My dad got cancer, and we had to take care of him, and family went through bankruptcy. We went through a lot, and I could not handle it. However, Jesus never intended for us to walk alone. He's given us one another. He's given us himself. And I can tell you, in addition to that, that the one another is not pie in the sky easy. People will drive you crazy. Some of you are shaking your head because you're like, yep, I can think of some people. <laughs> Don't say any names. But all that to say, people will drive you crazy. Walking together is not easy. We're all fallen. None of us are perfect. If you're looking for a perfect church, then as soon as you step into it, no longer perfect, guys. <laughs> so it is difficult to walk with one another. It is. It's not easy. However, we are called to it. We are called to show patience and to show gentleness and to walk through thick and thin together. First John 4.20, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We love one another because he first loved us. Walking together, even when it's difficult, is what equips us to be able to walk through trials, walk through suffering, and to walk unashamed. Jesus calls us to not be ashamed of him. On December 9th, just a couple years ago, 2019, um, a pastor by the name of Wang Yi, Chinese pastor, along with his wife and more than 100 Christians who attended their church, Early Rain Covenant Church, were arrested in the city of Chengdu by Chinese authorities. And the members of the congregation were charged with inciting subversion of state power. That was the charge, inciting subversion of state power. According to China Aid, this is a charge often handed to Chinese Christians because the Communist Party views religion as a threat to their ideological control. By unashamedly proclaiming Christ as the risen and returning king, Pastor Wang Yi, his wife, and more than 100 others were arrested by their government. His unashamed proclamation landed him nine years in prison. The charge could be up to 15. They shaved a few off, and so he's serving nine years for proclaiming Christ. And along with his wife and over 100 others were serving time because they were unashamed of the gospel. We in the West, we don't experience this kind of persecution as outright. But if that day comes, we need to be rooted. We need to be ready. But there are other ways in which we may face persecution. And in order to walk faithfully through that, in order to walk unashamed in that, we must know Jesus' identity. We must know what his words say and submit to them. And we must walk together. It's imperative for us. So the call in the Christian life is to be unashamed, to suffer like our Savior. And by beholding who he is, this transfiguration moment, he's talked about suffering, transfiguration happened, then he talks about suffering again. This transfiguration is what undergirds 
our ability to walk faithfully. When we see Jesus clearly, when we see who he is clearly, then we're willing to withstand any kind of suffering. And we need one another to remind each other of who he is and who we are in light of him. So a question for us this morning is, are you listening to King Jesus? Reading the word, meditating, memorizing. Are you praying, pursuing him in prayer? Are you asking the Holy Spirit for help and understanding the word? Sinclair Ferguson again says, if we want to see the glory of Jesus Christ now, we must read scripture just as eagerly as Peter would have lingered on the mountaintop. Peter was so excited. He said, should we make tents? Can I make tents for you guys? Like, what can I do? He's probably thinking of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles and for, uh, Feast of Booths. And so he's like, hey, Moses is here. That feast is to remind us of our time. You want me to make some tents? And Peter's so excited. And he's also terrified, as the text says. I should not overlook that. But Sinclair Ferguson says, we must read scripture just as eagerly as Peter would have lingered on the mountaintop. The same voice speaks in both places. The same testimony is given. Jesus is God's son. Listen to him. So would your day-to-day conduct, if you were to take an inventory, would it reflect shame in our Savior? Would it reflect you living unashamed, or ashamed in your work, in your friendships, marriage, parenting, in your relationships with neighbors. Think through. Does it reflect one who is unashamed? Are you faithfully walking with God's people on Sundays, throughout the week? We are called to the one another statements. We must gather to remind each other, as is the New Testament habit, on the first day of the week. And then we also walk with one another. We want to gather well. And we also want to scatter well. We don't forget about one another as we go throughout the week. Shameless plug for community groups, Tuesdays and Thursdays, 6.30. We'd love to see you there. (laughs) And then, are you prepared to pick up your cross and suffer? That's the call. A glorious call, isn't it? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to pick up your cross. One commentary says that the one who calls disciples to follow him does not abandon them for glory, but turns from glory to accompany them on the way to Jerusalem and the cross. Jesus could have disappeared with Moses and Elijah right then, but they disappear and he remains because his work was not yet finished. And he continued to go to the cross and he went to the cross so that anyone who would embrace him as their Lord, as their savior, would be able to experience that resurrected glory that he experienced. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was up there 40 days. When he came down, his face was absolutely radiant because he had been with God. And people said, put something over your face. We can't even take it. Jesus, after he's resurrected, he has a resurrected body. They didn't even recognize him. And he walked the earth for 40 days. So there is a connection there that this idea of suffering will lead to resurrection. And if we suffer with Christ, we'll be resurrected with him. We saw um, symbolism of that last week with baptisms. And so Hebrews 1.1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
Restoration to God is only possible through the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. God is making a way for his wayward people to be restored. And the way that that takes place is by listening to the one who has come to restore us. Are you trusting in what the word says about God, that he is holy? Are you trusting in what the word says about us, that we are sinners, that we are not holy, that there's a separation? And are you trusting what the word says about who Jesus is, that he is the only one who can bridge that gap? Pray that you would embrace that this morning, that you would see with greater clarity who Jesus is, just as the disciples did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's pray. Lord, come before you, grateful, grateful that you have shown us who you are, that you have shown us through your word, that you have shown us through Jesus, the word incarnate. And we ask that you would help us to see you clearly. We ask that we would live unashamed, that we'd be willing to suffer, that we would know you, we would know your word, and that we would walk with one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.